Well, welcome again to Encounter. A special welcome just joining us on uh, Encounter Church Online as well. We are in the series finale of the Fatal Failure series. This is a, this is a mouthful. I've practiced that one uh, a few times. This is part six. This is the send-off. Uh, but that's okay. We'll start a brand new series uh, next week. But uh, before we get into that, um, I want to kind of broad picture what we're up to in this series is to, to kind of try to own our failures, right? We're taking a look at stories in the Bible and seeing what God does with the stories back then and also seeing what God does with our failures here still today with, with all of us. And to some extent, I don't want to say that like we're normalizing failure, but at least we're, we're trying to own it and we're trying to be honest with it and just and say, yes, we've all fallen down, we've all fallen short, and we've all failed at something, that's okay. I kind of like, actually, the, the culture that we're in right now. It's just, it, it's a time, it seems like we're in a movement where, where we're all sort of owning the failures around. And even here at the church office, like, we have sayings around here as, as staff to say, listen, if we want to, if we want to double our rate of success, we have to first double our rate of failure because that's how we get there faster, I love what Thomas Edison once at least have claimed to have said about inventing the light bulb. He said, I didn't, I didn't fail. I never failed. I just found 10,000 ways not to invent a light bulb. That's all I did. I kind of like, like this culture around owning our failure. But I also want to know and I want to acknowledge that it comes with a giant caveat that we all kind of know and we don't really like say it because that's not like in the culture right now and it, it might not be welcome. But, but I'm just going to name it and say there's also this caveat around failure that also screams, don't fail the final. Right? Like it's okay if you just kind of, if you go through and if you're ups or downs all semester long, let's say, but just when it comes to the end, don't fail the final. And we'll see in life it's the same way. But first, but first the story is that when I was in high school, I did not play an instrument, which some of you know if you stand next to me during the music time, you're like, that dude cannot carry a tune in a bucket. No, right, that's true. And I also didn't play very many sports, so I had a lot of time on my hands. And as a ninth grader, I got to uh, participate in my high school offered shop class, which was like a great thing for like these delicate pastor hands, right, to like, you know, dig in and, and learn how to make a jewelry box, which is a skill that has not helped me at all in life. <laughs> Um, but like I got to learn about like electricity and you know, volts, amps, and watts. And if I ever need to know what those are, I can always Google it now. So there were some helpful things along the way. It, it did, but and I still carry with me. But what I learned during the shop class experience was that I actually wasn't terrible as a student. Like my jewelry boxes, useless as they were, but they were they weren't half bad. And so I kind of went through all semester long, and well, I was actually pretty okay. Started getting the idea that you know maybe I. Maybe I'm not actually that terrible with my hands. Maybe I can build stuff. Maybe there's a career. Right up until the final. <laughs> because what the final was, it was, a, it was a packet of projects. It was probably, probably this thick of just like all kinds of different things you could do throughout the shop classroom and then kind of combine everything together. As long as the points added up to 100, you put your name on all the projects, put them in the bucket, the teacher graded them, and that was your final grade. It was something like 60% of your final grade was just the final exam, right? It's the culmination of everything you've learned all semester long. And I thought, the semester was fine. I knew how to do things. I'm under a little bit of a time pressure with like three hours to finish these projects, but like, it'll be okay, I start the exam, everything's cruising, I get some easy points along the way, and then I realize something. 
Like like 80% of the points are about just one area of the chaperon that like nobody is in. So I can just go back in. As long as I can finish the rest of the projects with welding, I'll be fine. And I've done this in the class earlier. I actually kind of liked it. And so it's acetylene torch welding. So you got a like oxygen tank, acetylene tank, right? And you kind of do the knobs and light up the, the torch. And you got to work on, at least as a ninth grader, I had to work on like getting the perfect blue flame cone exactly honed in so it's nice and hot. And I got, I got my big leather gloves on and I got my big green goggles on and nobody else is in the room all around me. So I'm like, this is going to be so easy. So I got my, my welding rod over here and I got my perfect... Perfectly tuned in blue flame torch right over here. And I'm going about, my exam is over here. I'm kind of following along on the pattern, thinking to myself, I am crushing this thing. I'm going to be done with time to spare until I drop my welding rod on the ground. And so I know what I should do, right? I should just power everything down safely, take my gloves off, pick up the rod, right? Put the gloves on, power everything back up and get back to work. But remember, I'm under the time limit here. Like I need to keep moving. And so what do I do? I don't do what I should do. I look right and I look left and I think, well, I'll just bend down and pick it up. And so what I do is I kind of like do one of these numbers where I like got the torch and I'm like, I'll just hold it in the air and I'll reach down and just kind of grab that welding rod, only like those big floppy leather gloves on. I can't like struggle to pick it up. And by the time I pick it up, I pick up, realize that the packet sitting next to me, I had just been dipping that perfectly dialed in blue torch exactly into the center of my exam. And it had like, it had burned a hole clear through the middle. And now it was like radiating out to the outside. Now I'm glad for those big, these big leather gloves because I'm like patting this thing out, hoping that nobody else in the shop room realized that I just literally lit my exam on fire. <laughs> and again, I know what I should do own that. Get some points docked for obvious safety misconduct. Take my B and move on. But I think, well, I'm better than that. I'm great at this thing. So I crinkled it up, hide it away in a trash can I thought nobody used anymore. I go to my teacher and say, can I get a new exam? Lost mine. He's like, what do you mean you lost your exam? Like, how do you, I only made as many exams as there were like students in the class. You can't have another one. You got to go find it. It's not that big of a room. Here, let's go together. And so I'm just like following him around, like pretending to like look for this exam I had burned and then hid. Eventually he finds it. And I'm not kidding. He holds it up and he didn't need to say anything. He just stared at me (laughs) through the hall. And what I realized is the lesson that sticks with me is that you can cruise all semester long at something, but you don't want to fail the final. And so listening here today, I think there's a couple different types of people in the room. Maybe your life has been that perfect semester and you have just been cruising right along. And again, that same caution is don't let up, don't fail the final. But I also want to talk to a group in the room who maybe hasn't been cruising right along all life, all semester long. I want to talk to another group of people listening in right now. And you're like, listen, in my semester, in my life, I have screwed up permanently my first marriage. I mean, I cannot ever come back from that. 
Like, I want to talk to the person listening in the room right now who's like, listen, the relationship that I have with my kids could only be defined as estrangement at best. Then animosity, just nastiness after that. And I don't know what I said. I know a few things that they said. It's toxic. It's bad. I, that's in my background. I want to talk to somebody where you've been married for 20 years, 30 years. You know your spouse better than anybody else on this planet. And you also know how to hurt them better and more directly than anyone else on this planet. And in the midst of an argument, you know the exact thing not never to say. And in the heat of the argument, it's like they goad you and poke you and it just can't help but just blurt it out. And as soon as the words are out, you just want to grab them and stuff them back inside. But words don't work that way. Like toothpaste, they do not go back in the tube. Once they're out, it's a mess. Now to clean up. And oddly enough, the final, I think, can be helpful, even encouraging to say all semester long, maybe you've coasted and it's fine. All semester, all life long, maybe now, maybe, maybe it's been rough and full of regrets. But the final is coming. And listen, there's hope as long as we don't fail the final. And so I want to show you how not to do that from a book in the Bible. In fact, the last book of the Bible, it's called Revelation. And so I'd like to invite you to turn there. We're going to camp out in Revelation chapter 2. There's Bibles underneath the chair in front of you. And the words are also going to be on the screen behind me. We're in Genesis last week, the very first book of the Bible. This week we're in Revelation, the very last book of the Bible. And if you stick with me long enough here, you're going to start to understand maybe why we're going like first to the last. Because these things are related. But we'll have to stick it out to get there towards the end. Okay, so Revelation chapter 2 And we pick it up in verse 1, and it says that to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? And if you're reading the words in one of these, like, fancy leather-bound Bibles with maps in the back, you might notice that the words are actually in red. And it wasn't the case that, like, the biblical authors, like, switched to their, like, red quill and, like, started writing. It wasn't, wasn't anything about that. This is just something that was added much later. It's very helpful. It just indicates that these, in fact, aren't just the words of anybody, that these are the words of Jesus in Revelation chapter 2. So what we have here is we have Jesus writing to the angel of the church in Ephesus, and and John, the apostle, is writing these words down, the words of Jesus, the instructions down. And I just think it's really comforting to me to know that there's an angel over the church in that city. Ephesus was a city, like Grand Rapids, angel of the church over that place. And I just think it's kind of cool, like, especially as a, as a pastor of a church that met in a school cafeteria just a couple of years ago. Like, it's comforting for me to know that there's like this spiritual, angelic kind of, of godly leadership that's just not, not just from a human perspective, that God himself is actually guiding this church into his preferred future. I find that extraordinarily comforting. Okay, continuing on in verse 1, we see this later on. It says, these are the words... Of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. And this is the part that you get to in the Bible that you're just like, see, that's why I don't read it more. (laughs) Because it like doesn't make any sense at all. And so I want to encourage you, if, if you open up your Bible and you're just kind of like reading it along, 
hang with it, okay? You're going to come to some places that just by the fact that it's at least 2,000 years old, there might be a knowledge gap in between where we are and where they were then. And we just want to have the humility as we approach the Bible that even though it doesn't make sense to us entirely right now at the first reading, it did make sense to them then. And so as we start to unpack this thing, especially the seven stars kind of language on here, it's kind of interesting to me to know that for them, the meaning was right there. In fact, it was like on their person most of the time. All they had to do was like reach into their pocket and pull out a couple of coins. And this is what they would see on those coins. You see kind of a figure there sitting on a ball, probably a globe. And he's got these, these seven stars all around his head. This was their money. This is what they dealt with all the time. And so I just, I love this because the emperor, the guy who was in charge of all of Rome at the time, Domitian, he becomes emperor and he doesn't want to just be emperor. He also wants to be God. And so he mints money. He creates money to reinforce the fact he's not just anybody. He's in fact God. This coin is significant in particular because it wasn't just him sitting on that globe on the world. It wasn't just him sitting on the sphere there. It was, it was more than that. It was his son. Now, he had the, the tragedy of losing his son at a very young age, and he wanted to honor him. So he honors him by the best way he could. He honors him by declaring that his son is the son of God, which if you've been following Jesus for a while in your life, you know that that term also is loaded and comes from a place. But for Domitian, what it meant was his son being the son of God makes him God. And he demanded to be worshipped as such. And so they mint money with these seven stars. And so Paul, or so, sorry, so John writing these words down is simply highlighting for the church and everybody who would read this letter that rang out, don't forget who's actually in charge. Don't forget who actually sits on the throne. Don't forget who actually holds the seven stars in his hand. And you're like, see, that makes sense. Why wouldn't you just come out and say that? Fun fact about John is that he did frequently. In fact, he only made it to old age because all the other apostles, those first followers of Jesus, they went out, risked their lives, lost their lives. He only made it to old age because Jesus, dying on the cross, looked at his mom and looked at John and said, John, would you take care of my mom? And he did. He didn't have the luxury of becoming a martyr, losing his life for the sake of Christ because he had a responsibility to take care of Jesus' own birth mom, Mary. And so he makes it into old age, and he's getting bolder and bolder about his faith until finally they arrest him. He's like, you can't say that there's a God who's not the guy on the throne right now. They rough him up a little. They imprison him for a while. And then they eventually try to execute him. According to legend, they dipped him in a vat of boiling oil, but the guy wouldn't die. What do you do with somebody like that? So for them, they just decided, well, if we can't kill him, we might as well banish them. And so they send them away. They send them to this island of Patmos. It's like, it's like Alcatraz. It's a prison island. Say, I guess just forget him. He's all by himself. That's it. He's going to have no other influence at all. Until he gets a vision from God, a revelation, and he writes it down and sends out these messages in coded language all throughout the Roman Empire. 
You see, it doesn't make a lot of sense for us, but in order to sneak it past the guard, he had to thinly veil his story in such a way that they wouldn't exactly know who they were talking about. But if you were a part of the Jesus movement, you would pick this thing up and you'd realize, I know exactly what Jesus is doing. He's flexing on the emperor, right? He's letting everybody know, regardless who's sitting on the throne, we know who actually is on the throne. We know who's actually holding the seven stars. And they knew who the lampstands were for, too. The lampstands highlighted in there as the churches, again, thinly veiled to indicate a city on a hill, a lamp that cannot be hidden. Jesus is the one with his authority walking around in the churches. Verse 2. Jesus begins the content of his message and he says, I know your deeds. I know your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Twice, twice in these short verses, he references the hardships and the perseverance. Jesus has given him an attaboy there. He's saying, you did it. Like, you're, you're doing well at this. Your, hardship, your, your, your work ethic, you're sticking with it, your perseverance, keep at it. And we kind of get like, oh, the, the uh, hard work. We understand that. Uh, Paul went to the city of Ephesus where this letter is going to be written to. Years previous, Paul went there and he, he hung out in this, the hall of Tyrannus. It was like this big kind of teaching assembly gathering area. And normally what would happen is that as somebody was teaching, hot part of the day, everybody would go away, take a very long lunch hour along with a nap, and then come back when it's like cooler and there's a, there's a nice cross breeze coming through. Paul says, no, no, I'm teaching all the way through, all day long, every single day. And the people showed up for it. Every single day. He did that for at least two years. We start to get the sense like, oh, wow. This is like 3,000 plus hours of teaching and learning on these people. It's no wonder that elsewhere in Scripture, in the book of Acts, the actions of the, the first followers of Jesus that we see, Ephesus became like this sending power hub of the faith, particularly after Jerusalem fell in 76 AD. Like Ephesus became that Christian center that emanated out the gospel because of their hard work, their work ethic, devoting themselves to teaching the gospel, and also their perseverance. It impacted their life. You know, it was kind of kind of funny kind of tragedy, but it said that in the library in Ephesus, there was a secret underground tunnel that went from the library underground across the street to the brothel next door. And so people wrote about how young men particularly love to go to the library, right? But, but Jesus here is commending the people in Ephesus. That's just the tip of the iceberg. There's some nasty stuff going on in this city. Jesus now commends them and says, no, no, you persevered. You did well. You hung in there. You did it. Particularly in light of all the emperor worship that Domitian and so many others were demanding. Jesus has a word of encouragement for the church in saying, you didn't just work hard. You persevered. Keep at it. So this is a bit of a, a tangent from our theme this morning about not failing the final. But I believe, I believe that the 
The Bible is God's inspired word. So I believe it was written, as many of you do, by human beings. But those human beings are like carried along in the power of God's Holy Spirit with them. And so these words aren't just any words. These words are inspired words. And I believe also that, that the word order is inspired. And I think somebody needs to hear this today, that Jesus, he doesn't start off with a critique. He doesn't start off with a criticism. He starts off with grace. And I think we need to hear that order that Jesus starts with grace first. Because honestly, we kind of we live in a cancel culture, don't we? We kind of live in a world where if somebody steps in or says the wrong thing, whether it's a politician, a sports figure, a celebrity, somebody on TV or a movie or something like that, just as, as social media, if they step in it and say the wrong thing, it's like they're done. I'm out. And to be honest with you, I don't, like, I don't totally know what to do with that because a lot of times like, they signed up for that position and they knew what they were getting into. But what I do know is that that has a way of also filtering into our families, into our close friend circles, that we kind of walk on eggshells sometimes and we don't want to say a truth statement to somebody else because we worry that we're going to be canceled and shut out. And so this is like just some encouragement for any one of you that's going to have like a difficult conversation ahead of you, which is honestly 100% of us. Like at one point or another, we're all going to be head, heading into this difficult conversation. Like there's so much wisdom in these words of Jesus to lead with this place of grace, of, of just offering, of offering that kind word first that we say around here. Encouragement is like oxygen for the soul. And Jesus is offering that to them in earnest. Here, you're doing well at this. And he's going to have a truth word later, but first he leads with grace because he knows that people aren't going to care how much you know until you know how much they care. And so Jesus offers this thing first. And he's going to get to it. But I think some of us might need to hear, particularly if you're not the one saying it, you know to lead with grace. But on the receiving end of it, you see, grace, grace is this. Grace is loving someone no matter what. Truth is being honest with somebody no matter what. And John, the same John that wrote the book of Revelation, also wrote his gospel, his Jesus story. In the beginning, John 1, he said, listen, I lived with Jesus for three years and the best way that I can describe him is that he's full of grace and full of truth. It's not half of one and half of the other, 70, 30, 60, 40. It's not like a mixture. He's full of grace, full of truth. And, and you should just see him interact with people. Everybody in every interaction got full of both of them. It was the most incredible, incredible thing that I've ever seen. And so on the receiving end of that grace and that truth, heading into that conversation, I just, I want to offer you this, this warning that if somebody sits down and they offer you first a kind word and then a, and then a word of admonition or, or a word of correction before you cancel them and like write them off, I just want you to remember that grace means they love you no matter what. Truth means they're going to be honest with you no matter what. And if they're being honest with you, it may also mean that they love you. And if you've got close people in your life and they've never admonished, they've never challenged you to grow in some way, either you're perfect and you have no opportunity to grow or much more likely 
They love you enough to be honest with you. Grace and truth. Now Jesus, he leads with grace. Order matters. And now we're going to see him get into the truth. And in verse 4, he says, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent. Do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. I'll take away your church. But you have this in your favor. (laughs) But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. It's a compliment sandwich. (laughs) He ends with an encouraging word too. But like the middle, right? The middle. I hold this against you. You've forsaken the love you had at first. Now, it's kind of ambiguous. Like, what, what's the love that he's referencing here? It could be a couple of different things. It could be like a horizontal thing. It could be a vertical thing. And sometimes I read things that are, that are a- ambiguous like this as probably because it's like divinely inspired as like intentionally ambiguous. Like, like maybe he kind of means both of the meetings. So on the first hand, there's like this, this love you had at first. There's like this horizontal love. And so you can just kind of figure out like, like where you need to grow, where you are on the spectrum, what's the, what's the truth that needs to kind of impact you today. Is this challenge on the horizontal. The problem with the church in Ephesus is that as they devoted themselves to the study and after they memorized all these passages and they learned so much about God, about his word, as they grew there, it kind of grew them away from the people around them. And so we say statements like we love where we live because we know that as we grow in relationship with God, it has to impact the relationship all around us. And so what happened for them is they stopped reading the Bible as God's like romance or love story from him to all of us as people. They stopped reading the Bible as a love story and they started reading the Bible like a bullet point verse list. And they've got a verse lined up, always one in the chamber and they're firing them off at people. And people around them, they didn't know, they didn't know that these Christians love them because honestly they're lying on the ground bleeding from the words that they said. And so, and so John here, through Jesus, is, is like offering this to the people and saying, guys, love the people. Just because you've, you've committed yourself to such hard work, just because you've persevered, it doesn't give us the excuse to, to harm the people around with our words. So maybe it's that, but I think also the more important and the more powerful, poignant one in the verse here is that vertical thing. Because the word, that's like you've forsaken your first love, the love that you had at first, the love there, it comes off and like the connotations in, in Greek, that original language is, is sort of like the, like the ooey gooey, you know, romance, kind of like honeymoon sort of love that you had at first. And this is the, this is the love in the, in the passage here where, where Jesus is, is writing these people and like, remember how much you loved God. Remember how much you loved him at first. First in priority, first in order, first in space, first in geography, first in time, right? Remember how all of it, how, how much you loved God at first so much that there wasn't even a close second. Remember how close you were to him at first. And then you remember when you kind of turned around on that and started walking the other direction. And he's saying, come on back. Remember that love that you had at first. I came across this, and I thought it was so, I thought it was so interesting. It needed to be shared. Exodus, way back, second book of the Bible, Exodus 34, I think it's 14. And God says, uh, don't worship any other gods. 
For my name is, capital J, Jealous, for I am a jealous God. And I thought, now that's a statement that belongs in the Department of Redundancy Department, right? Like, why? With such limited writing space, would you use up so much space on just one concept? My name is Jealous, I'm a jealous God. And I think that the word of God sometimes is not just written to be read over and a story to be understood. It is. But it's also written to be meditated on and to be thought about. It's meant to be like reading over something like that and saying like, wait, wait a second. It probably, probably wants to draw our attention. And we think jealousy, is God even allowed to be jealous? I mean, isn't that something that we're not supposed to have? No, that's envious. That's wanting something that's not good for us or that we shouldn't have or that doesn't belong to us. Jealousy, jealousy though, is wanting something that rightfully does belong to us. Jealousy for God to say, my name is jealous. I am a jealous God. He's saying, the love that you used to have, the love that you had at first, that's mine. It rightfully belongs to me. Not once, my name is jealous, but twice, I am a jealous God. And I think it's important that he says this, not once, it's twice. Because we pick it up here and he's saying, no, no, it was mine. You owe me two, you owe me two lives. I owe him two lives. Once when he made me out of the dust, made me out of the nothing. And a second life I owe him when he bought me back from sin. His name is Jealous and he is a jealous God. We owe him not one life, but two when he made us and when he bought us back. And so a little bit later on in time together, I just, I want to give you an opportunity to respond to that and say yes. Because in the, in, the, in the text right here, in that same verse, in verse 5, we see the instructions how to say yes to that. Like if you're ready to get back to that love that you had at first, that jealous kind of ooey-gooey honeymoon love that God has for you, all he says is you've walked away, it's time to Turn. Turn. That's what that word repent in verse 5, it's what it specifically means. It translates literally as just turn around. That's all there is to it. You've walked away. If you've walked away from God, if you've found yourself moved away from God, it wasn't God who moved. We've turned our back. We've walked away. And we expect to turn around at some point and to see whatever we would normally see with any other human relationship in our life, a God who has turned his back on us and is now leaving us. But no, no, no. What John is saying here, what Jesus is saying here in Revelation 2 is that once we repent, once we turn around, we we see that God isn't having his back to us walking away. No, no, what we turn around and we see his arms stretched wide open with a double kind of double jealous love for us, waiting to embrace us and say, you're welcome, you're home now, finally. Turn around. Find that love you had at first. That double kind of love. And it gets, it gets so much better. It gets so much better. In verse 7, in verse 7, the last verse we see, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, or sometimes to the one who is the overcomer, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. I said, I said, hang in there until the end. There's a reason why we we're in Genesis last week, Revelation today, first book, last book today, is because way back in Genesis, in the garden, there was two trees with Adam and Eve. There was a tree of life, 
And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, this firsthand kind of knowledge. And Adam and Eve, they, they experienced that and they gained, unfortunately for them and all of us, they gained firsthand knowledge of good and evil. And they were exiled from the garden from paradise as a result of it. God never forgot about that other tree. He never forgot about that tree of life. And so what we see is 66 books later, we see that theme picked up again because God hasn't forgotten. Or if you like it better, what we see is 1,168 chapters later, God hasn't forgotten yet. What we see is 30,647 verses later, church, God hasn't forgotten at all about that tree of life. And he's saying, I'm coming back to it. It's not over yet, but it is time to turn around and come back home to my open arms. Paradise awaits you know, and I just, I, I've been thinking about this like earlier this week, and I just want to give you, it's a, it's a bad example, okay? Just get that out right. But it's like the best we can come up with. Years ago, I was invited by some friends uh, to go to a baseball game and give them some free tickets. You know who you are, thank you. But it wasn't just any game. Detroit Tigers at home. We drive over to Detroit, and we're, and we're, parking it's a special parking ramp i didn't even know existed you guys it's like this secret parking ramp we get out and the elevator in the parking garage has an attendant it's like well that's weird they scan you know the tickets and like there you go we go through a skyway because we didn't even didn't have to like touch the street below it was incredible skyway there's retired detroit tigers like signing swag that they're just like giving away to everybody not bad all right we get to our seats which weren't seats at all. It was like a hotel suite. We walk in and there's like seats, indoor, outdoor, TV monitors, a bathroom inside. So we didn't even have to leave. And the best part of everything, you guys, it brought a tear to my eye. We could look over and there's a a bountiful buffet just everything, right? We've got the chicken tenders with ranch on ranch because we're good Midwesterners, right? We got, there's like the the meat with the red lamp keeping it kind of warm but not hot. It's weird, but like, sure, I'll take two of those. And of course, of course, we're at, you know, Detroit Tigers. We got the Little Caesars over here, but it's it's not like the Little Caesars I've ever had before. I mean, it was hot and it was ready, but it's like deep dish. It was, I'm telling you, church, it was better because it was there. And I thought, like, listen, doubling up on, on chicken tendies, right, and, and getting my ranch and my weird tepid meat and extra deep dish, right, I'll take it all. Just, I got, like, three plates. You can go back as many times as you want. It doesn't matter. But I'm still, like, I'm taking all of it, right, going out there. And presumably there was a baseball game on as well. <laughs> I'm thinking, right, like, I found it. The tree of life. Paradise right there. Not even close. But you've got a ticket. And it's so much better than that. So much better. Because later on in Revelation, it says it's not a all-you-can-eat buffet at a baseball game. It's, it's a place where there's no more tears or mourning or sadness or death. Because the old order of things has passed away. It's paradise that was lost in the garden and is now found again in 
Jesus is standing there and saying, just turn around. I'm waiting for you. Church, I want to invite you to stand up where you are right now. And I want to just give you that invitation this morning. Because maybe you're ready to turn around. We're told in Hebrews chapter 9 that after death, we go to a place. We go to this divine appointment before God where we're giving an account of our lives. But church, we, we tend to think it's a dreadful moment. It's not a dreadful moment. Not for those who have hope. It's a moment of dancing and it's a moment of music. It's a, it's a moment of celebration. Because what we also read is 2 Corinthians 5 is that Jesus Christ, who had no sin, became sin so that we could be called the righteousness of God. And in that divine moment, the appointment he has on his calendar, God looks at us and he sees all of the righteousness and all of the good and all of the victory of his son, Jesus Christ. And the ticket is just turning around, coming back home. So I invite you to close your eyes and and bow your heads and we're we're gonna pray together as a church community. And I just wanna give you that invitation because Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10 that if you acknowledge him before others, I will acknowledge you before my Father in heaven on that day. And so I just simply wanna give you that invitation, church. And at at the moment that I ask, I'd like you to just simply raise your hand and say, I'm ready to turn around. I'm ready to come back home. I'm ready to offer my life in exchange for his. Maybe this is going to be the first time you've ever prayed this prayer. Maybe it's the first time in a very long time, but it's time now to come home. Paradise awaits. I'd like everybody where you are, if you feel comfortable, to simply repeat after me when we say together, Dear Jesus, I'm tired of running. I'm turning around. Please take my sin and give me your life. Now, if you found your heart praying those prayers and for the first time or for the first time in a long time, if you find yourself meaning those and wanting to come back home, I'm asking you to acknowledge him before men. Put your hand in the air where you are. Amen. Thank you, church. Just keep them up. And I just want to see them all. Thank you. This is the opportunity now. You can put those hands down, what you've done. You've acknowledged him before others. And I'm going to ask you for two more steps. I'm going to ask you, number one, to simply tell somebody about that, about this act that you made, this declaration that you just made. Just tell someone. There's nothing spiritual or, or eternal weight on that at all, but it's just a, it's just for me, it's just what seals the deal. Just telling what could be me, could be a member of our worship team. We've got a prayer team set up during this song afterwards go back tell one person maybe the person that you came with and number two it's time to go public with that encounterchurch.org slash baptism it's time to get wet church it's time to show the world you've been raised with jesus christ and found new life in him encounterchurch.org slash baptism start the conversation it's coming up next month in april we want to celebrate with all of you church is a hallelujah happening amen Amen. Let's welcome, let's celebrate all those people who gave their life to Christ and the dozen or so at the first experience this morning. Amen. We sing our praises to God up above in here. Hallelujah below as well. Let's sing it out.